Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan. In season one, we explored many cosmetic procedures, injectables, and skincare. Then in season two, we discussed reconstructive plastic surgery, including a few episodes on hand surgery. If you're interested in hearing about any of those topics, please scroll back through the past episodes to find what intrigues you. And now, in this season three, we are tackling general questions that people have about plastic surgery. So today, we're talking about options for anesthesia and for post-procedure pain management. What's out there? How are choices made? And what's the deal with opioids? Let's talk about it. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, even if you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. Okay, you've decided to or need to undergo a surgery, whether cosmetic or reconstructive. But except for the most minor and superficial procedures, you're going to also need some type of anesthesia to help you tolerate the procedure without pain. And you'll need something to help with pain afterwards. How do you know what's best for your situation? Well, let's break down some basics first. Anesthesia versus analgesia. I can bet you've heard the first term anesthesia many times before and have a pretty good idea what it means. Literally, it's the absence of sensation. But as it relates to procedures, it's the use of anesthetics, which are medications that dull the senses, including touch, temperature, and pain. But some of these meds can also dull awareness in general. In those cases, all of our known senses are temporarily impacted as consciousness is affected. But what about analgesia? What's that? It's the inability to feel pain. So analgesics are simply medications which temporarily take away or reduce your ability to sense pain. These can be important during a surgery, but they're especially helpful after a surgery for pain management. Of course, there is some overlap, but while anesthesia refers to loss of sensation in general, analgesia is loss of pain sensation in particular. And actually, during some procedures, these two different medication categories may be used simultaneously for a better experience. But for clarity, we'll divide this episode's discussion into two sections, tackling anesthesia first and then analgesia. Historically, methods of achieving anesthesia go back to over 4,000 years BC or BCE, and early on focused on herbs and botanicals and even opium. Acupuncture, though not a drug per se, was a useful development in ancient China as well, and it's still actually used to help chronic or long-term pain today. Some early attempts at achieving anesthesia involved distraction of the patient by creating other pain during a procedure, but as you can imagine, that did not go over well. There were also attempts to knock someone out prior to a surgery, such as with alcohol or even punching them in the jaw. My goodness. Over time, more sophisticated means of anesthesia were developed. Later on, various gases were discovered to be useful and were brought into the fold. Examples include ether, chloroform, and nitrous oxide. So, to give you an organized overview of modern anesthesia, let's go over the various categories available today, and I'll try to give examples of methods of administration and when each might be used as well. We'll start with the least amount of intervention and work up the scale. So first is local anesthesia. 
It's given that name because it removes sensation to touch and pain right in the local area that is to be treated and nowhere else. It's most commonly administered by the person who will be performing the procedure, typically by injecting the medication under the skin around the involved area. Yet it can also be sprayed on or topically applied like a gel, cream, or patch, though these other methods rarely go very deeply and would probably not be enough to protect against feeling a significant incision in the skin like the injected method would. Common local anesthetics include lidocaine, which will last up to an hour or so on average, and marcaine, which can last several hours. But there are others too. Sometimes a small concentration of epinephrine will be added to the local before it's administered, since this has the effect of constricting blood vessels and may reduce bleeding during the procedure. Injectable local anesthesia is adaptable to a lot of situations, especially smaller surgeries which are going to be done in the office. Topical local anesthesia is more suited to laser procedures, peels, and the like. Next is what is called regional anesthesia. This is still only focused on temporarily halting sensation to touch and pain, but it affects a broader area than just the surgical site. An example would be a beer block of the arm for, say, a hand surgery. No, not that kind of beer. It's the name of the man who first described the technique over 100 years ago. It involves the use of a tourniquet and intravenously injected medication. But the medication does not go to the brain or affect consciousness due to the presence of the tourniquet. It just numbs up everything below the tourniquet. Spinal and epidural anesthesia and specific nerve blocks are other examples of regional anesthesia. After that, we have sedation. Now here is where consciousness starts to be affected. Sedation can be useful if a patient tends to be anxious no matter what, even if the surgical area is pretty numb, or if the procedure is a little more involved in complexity. It can be administered orally or intravenously, meaning through the IV line, or by inhalation, like breathed in gas. This is probably the most flexible type of anesthesia because it can be titrated by dose, meaning that the more medication that is given, the deeper the sedation. But risks do come along with that, and though it's a very useful tool, it should not be taken lightly. The deeper the sedation, the more likely problems could develop, ranging from inconveniences like nausea to a person's breathing slowing down or even stopping, or blood pressure dropping, resulting in cardiac problems. Because of these risks, often an anesthesiologist or anesthetist will be the one to administer the sedation so they can monitor the vital signs of the patient and intervene as necessary, while the surgeon focuses on performing the procedure. But that's not to say that the surgeon cannot administer their own lighter sedation for a patient. In fact, it's commonly the case, as in a person taking an oral sedative or a Valium, etc., for an office procedure. The patient could take a nice nap but still be wakeable as needed. This method would often be combined with an injected local anesthetic or a regional block to numb up the surgical area and round out the anesthesia, thus increasing the patient's comfort and decreasing the medication dosage required for sedation. Many times, a twilight effect is the desired amount of sedation, where the patient is still technically awake but feels like they are in a zen type of state, very comfortable and feeling no pain. Along this line, there is a newer development of patient-controlled anesthesia in the form of inhalational nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas. This method goes by trade names such as Pronox and Nitronox and is self-administered. Patients themselves have to hold the tube at their mouth in order to receive the gas. As a patient starts to take on enough nitrous gas to fall asleep, 
Their hand also relaxes and naturally falls away, thereby stopping the continuation of the gas. Once they start to wake again, they can position the tube back up to their face as needed for comfort. And now we come to the deepest anesthesia of all, which is general anesthesia. In this setting, the patient is essentially unconscious and has no awareness or conscious feedback of their senses at all. In fact, the sedation is so deep that breathing stops and is assisted by a ventilator. The body's muscles may be intentionally relaxed by medication as well, so there is no movement during surgery. Typically, it starts with IV medication being introduced to allow the patient to fall asleep. Then a breathing tube is placed once the patient is asleep, and anesthesia is continued through inhaled gas inside the tube. It's administered at a rate to keep the patient asleep and comfortable. This state is essential for the most involved surgeries, which a patient would not be able to tolerate otherwise, or in a situation where the surgeon cannot risk the patient moving during the procedure. It's also the most reliably consistent way to make sure the patient feels no pain, and it helps reduce some of the risk of airway and blood pressure problems that can occur in just a heavily sedated state. Some people are afraid of general anesthesia because they have heard isolated stories of problems, but they may not realize that the vast majority of general cases go off without a hitch. It's considered quite safe, especially for an elective surgery on a healthy patient. But a relative drawback is that the effects of general anesthesia can linger longer than some of the other methods. So given all of these anesthetic choices, how is it decided which to use? Well, here's where the experience and expertise of the surgeon comes into play, as well as that of the anesthesia professional if one is involved. As a patient, of course, you do have some degree of say in the matter, but it is only within the limit of choices that the surgeon provides you. The reason is that many factors must be considered in order to provide you the safest care with the best outcome. The magnitude of surgery, the medical history and tolerance level of the patient, and what's available or even practical in the procedural facility are all factors that have to be weighed into this decision. So trust your surgeon who wants this to be a success for you both and a safe one at that. All right, as promised, the second part of our discussion focuses on analgesia. And to simplify, I'm mainly referring to post-procedure pain management. Except for the lightest of treatments, people tend to need something after a procedure to help with pain. For years, opioids have been the gold standard for managing post-operative pain. Why? Because they work well. But they can also create problems, especially with extended use, the least of which could be things like nausea and constipation. But I'm also talking about much worse things like overdose and addiction. In fact, with the recent light shed on the opioid addiction epidemic, many physicians have tried to steer to other pain management methods as much as possible. There's even a movement now to focus on enhanced recovery after surgery, or ERAS, which involves the combination of medication and non-medication interventions and protocols, which, among other things, can have the effect of reducing or avoiding the need of opioids in certain situations. So let's discuss both opioid and non-opioid methods of pain control. Opioids are a large class of drugs, which include those originally related to opium, derived from the opium poppy. Now, this is not quite the same species as the common poppy found in many gardens. And there are some synthetic opioids, too. Opioids work by dulling the senses and therefore decreasing pain reception. 
they actually bind to certain receptors in the brain and in the body and block pain signals. They've also been given the global name of narcotics. Generally, they can tend to make a person sleepy, hence the title. The word root, narco, refers to numbed senses or being drowsy, kind of like it does in the word narcolepsy. Opioid categories can range from things like codeine and hydrocodone to morphine and fentanyl, and even all the way to heroin. So obviously, not all opioids are used medicinally. By the way, interesting that morphine was named for Morpheus, who was the god of dreams. So now, what's available for postoperative pain management that doesn't involve opioids? Well, it turns out there are quite a few options, and often, combining more than one method for pain relief can produce a synergistic effect. Certainly, if we think back to the local anesthetics that we talked about, some varieties have long-lasting effects that can carry well into the extended postoperative period. The duration of numbness can actually be prolonged if a device like a pain pump is utilized at the end of the surgery. This device is filled with local anesthetic, like Marcane, and slowly drips it back into the wound through a sterile small tube or catheter that is left in place as the skin is being closed. Once all of the local or numbing medicine has gradually been distributed or used up over the course of a couple of days, the catheter is easily slipped out from under the skin, painlessly. A similar concept occurs with a substance called Exparel, E-X-P-A-R-E-L. It's a fluid composed of little microscopic vesicles, kind of like bubbles, which are called liposomes, which hold on to a small amount of numbing medicine that they gradually release over the next couple of days. This expiral fluid is injected into the surgical area before the patient wakes up, so it is a painless administration. This gradually distributed numbing medicine helps reduce pain sensation in the area of the procedure and therefore reduces the need for other medicine. Moving past local anesthetics, there are lots of non-narcotic or non-opioid medications that can be used, either orally or intravenously, to help with post-procedure pain. Many of these fall into the anti-inflammatory category. If inflammation can be reduced at the surgical site, then pain reduction follows suit. Some of the oral basics include things you already know about, like Tylenol and aspirin for lesser pain, but bigger pain can be tackled by NSAIDs, also pronounced NSAIDs, which stand for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Though certainly steroids themselves can be utilized for short-term relief as part of a combined medication regimen, NSAIDs refer to a broad group of anti-inflammatory drugs, and some in particular possess a formulation aimed more at treating pain itself. These are available by prescription and go beyond the over-the-counter versions of NSAIDs you may recognize, like ibuprofen or Motrin and naproxen or Aleve, though these over-the-counter options can be a useful addition in the right situation, too. In addition, while still in the operating room, there is a medication called Ofirmev, O-F-I-R-M-E-V, an intravenous version of acetaminophen or Tylenol, which can be a surprisingly strong tool to reduce future pain when administered this way. Other categories of medication which can be used to assist with temporary reduction of pain include a few medications that target reduction of nerve pain. Gabapentin or Neurontin would be an example. And some studies show that starting these meds right before surgery can actually reduce their need after surgery. But there are plenty of non-medication techniques that can be utilized to help manage pain. These can also be started before surgery, including mental preparation of the patient about pain. When we expect we're going to have some pain, 
and that it will be decreased as best as possible, but not likely be gone, it's easier to accept and deal with it when it occurs, and we don't have to panic thinking we need a drug to quell it. Even early movement after surgery, meaning getting up and moving, has been shown to help enhance recovery and decrease the amount of overall pain medication needed. Of course, the final say on this one goes to the surgeon, since certain surgeries require a bit of activity restriction for a while to avoid complications. Another non-medication concept that shows promise is shifting the focus of post-operative discussion away from solely being on the pain. An example would be asking a patient after surgery if they are comfortable or whether they can manage what they're feeling rather than asking how severe their pain is on a scale of 1 to 10. This may psychologically reduce the perceived need of pain meds. So, to sum up, what I wanted to convey to you in this episode is that first, there are likely more options than you realize regarding any needed anesthesia for a planned procedure. Secondly, and similarly, there is an abundance of choice regarding analgesia or post-procedure pain management beyond opioids. Studies have shown that a combination of approaches may likely produce the most satisfying outcome. Of course, you would never be expected to possess all of this knowledge or to try to decide what should be used in your case. While your opinion is important, final recommendations are best left to your surgeon and any professional anesthesia staff who may be involved. But it is helpful for you to be aware of options, categories, and trends so that you'll have a better appreciation and understanding when a certain method is recommended for you. And, as always, you can trust that your healthcare professionals are looking out for you and making decisions tailored to your individual case. Now that's always a good feeling. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.